Today we had our first rounds of communal, communal group interviews, and it was um, it was an enlightening experience for me. I learned a lot. Uh, I used to think that I my my meditation experience and my problems in meditation were very unique, but I've discovered since that. I have a lot of company. So thank you for sharing your process with me today. That was very educational. I went through some of the questions that showed up in the question box. I haven't seen the latest batch. But looking at what came in last night, um, a couple of themes emerged. And so maybe... I'll see if I can talk about these couple of themes. Last night I spoke a little bit about, uh, maybe it was the night before, I mentioned uh, a simile or a metaphor that Bhikkhu Nyanananda, a teacher from Sri Lanka, uh, has used in some of his teachings. and. It goes like this. A person comes, comes along uh, with the job of cleaning up a rubbish heap, a heap of trash. And he's got a basket or a wheelbarrow or something, and he's going to gather up this trash and get rid of it. And just as he's about to, to start this work, he notices something on the trash, and it attracts his interest. And he looks more closely, and he sees that it's a, it's a gem. And so now it used to be a, a, a unified tr trash heap. Now something has come into being because of contact. So uh, before there was no gem, but there was just a rubbish heap. But upon directing his attention, catching a little glimpse, having feeling come up, a pleasurable feeling, like, ooh, maybe there's something interesting here. More attention, maybe intention to discover what's there, the perception of what's there, the recognition of it. So you can see that there's all these mental processes happening as the person recognizes a gem there in the rubbish heap. So... In order for the gem to exist for that person, there has to be uh, all these factors on the person's side. Now, to say nothing of the physical manifestation out there in the world, simply experientially, at first there is no gem for that person. Then with... Um, because that person is awake and alive and has a mind and is in the proximity of, the gem has a certain shape to it, the person has working eyes. So because of all of these conditions, contact happens. When the eye falls on the gem, the pleasurable hint of maybe something interesting there touches the mind, and then eye consciousness goes to that location and mental processes process the information that's coming in and, in effect, fabricate the process of recognizing, oh, that's a gem. Those are really valuable. Right? So this whole process of the gem coming into being happens in the person's mind, coming into existence, you could say. So, at that moment, 
something which didn't exist before now exists. It, it, it has arisen. And we see in this process uh, several links of, 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 you could say, coming into existence, several things that are required for this to happen. So the first, uh, the one that I just spoke about, um, is contact. And contact uh, doesn't exist in a, uh, in a single moment. Uh, it doesn't all come together in a single moment. There is a single moment in which contact occurs, but the process of contact itself relies on a lot of precedents, things that happened before. So at some time in that, and let's just say it's a man, sometime in that man's life when he was, when he was a little boy, um, uh, maybe when he was an infant, he uh, played with rocks or played with small, hard objects. And when he was doing that, he, came, he encountered um, different textures, smoothness, hardness. And even before he had words for rocks, um, with his tactile sensory apparatus, he had to encounter these uh, phenomena. Even before he had concepts for them, he just touched things and put, you know, if you've ever seen a child learning about the world, it crawls around in the ground, it finds something and it puts it in its mouth, it tastes it, it smells it, it feels it, it, uh, it encounters it fully with all of its sense organs. And then it moves on to the next thing. So if, you know, if you've got a, 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 an infant in the house who's crawling on all fours discovering the world, it's pretty vigorous about its discovery process. It's very interested. But it doesn't have any concepts in, in a linguistic sense. It doesn't have words for what it's encountering. But it is learning about the world. So the way that we learn about the world is from these very, very early pre-verbal contacts with the sensory realm. This is the realm of form. The, the, what the infant is encountering is a realm of form, of touch, of taste, of, of uh, sight and sound, but without any concepts overlaying on it at first. At some point, the infant's mind will quite naturally start to categorize its experiences. So it will recognize that um, one round, hard object, what we would call, say, a small stone, is, has something in common with another small, round, hard object of a similar nature. It'll start to generalize and, and it'll, it'll come up with its own internal category of the collection of small, round, hard objects, which later on his mother will teach him, that's called a stone. Those are stones. Why are you carrying those stones around? What's this in your pocket? Why are you carrying stones? I like stones. They're fun. Here, this is a marble. It's like a stone, but it's perfectly round. Ooh, that's fun. Right? So the, the child takes this initial wordless encounter with the world and learns a category, stone. And it seems like the category is the object. So I can say the word stone, and for every one of us here, we all know what that means in a way. We have a, an internal representation of stoneness. And then there's all kinds of associations. Hard, cold, smooth, uh, a stony gaze, a uh, head full of stones, completely stoned. <laughs> right, so we have all this, like the word has all these kind of like associations with it that have accumulated over time. These associations and these concepts, this is called nama. So there's this, this category, this uh, uh, collection of mental factors um, the pre-existing storehouse of uh, infant and, and childhood and, uh, wordless encounters with the physical body, with the physical world. So we learn about things like up and down, and hard and soft, and cold and hot, without anybody telling us what, what these things are. We just directly experience them. Later on, we generate concepts that we start to generalize, like Cold water is very similar to cold air, and a cold cat's nose is very similar to cold water. And cold, so we, we, we learn about the generalizability of the concept, coldness. This, our brains do this very, very naturally. We're, we're designed to generalize, to recognize patterns. That's part of our nature as human beings.
along the way, our parents and our culture, our siblings and everybody else, is giving us words for these things. So we learn the word cold is the representation of this phenomenon of coldness. And so we, we have a concept, and then we have a, a label for that concept. And both the concept and the label are pointing at a phenomenon which is only experiential. But we're not always experiencing coldness. Right? I can say the word cold and you know what it means. You can experience coldness in your mind without the actual physiological experience of coldness, just like hardness, up and down, inside and outside. All these concepts are available for you to manipulate in your mind. So the form group or the rupa group is this collection of experiential uh, wordless, grounded concepts that came from our initial counters of the world. And everything else is an update of that. So all the concepts that overlay those initial encounters, um, those are called nama. So we have nama rupa. Without nama rupa, that boy could not later recognize the gem. Right? He had to have encountered hardness, roundness. I had to encounter the, the notion of something being valuable even though it's small. Uh, he had to encounter the notion of maybe money and exchange and barter and things that I want. Right? But it all goes back to rupa. Right? It all goes back to childhood. Putting things in your mouth and tasting them. Touching things and seeing that they're smooth or they're shiny, pretty, sharp, ouch, cut, pain. Pleasure. All these things are really, really visceral, really, really uh, connected to this physical body and our encounters with the world when we're infants. So the concept of gem rests on all those prior things. Without all those prior things, gem cannot exist. Right? Imagine a person who's never encountered anything like that. They know about stones, they know about bits of charcoal, they see a gem, and for them it's just another stone, a shiny stone. But it doesn't have any value. It doesn't mean like, ooh, maybe I can buy a new house, or ooh, maybe I can get a better girlfriend, or ooh. Like, it doesn't have all these implications. Right? Um, but for someone who knows what a gem is, it has all these implications. It's, much, it's a much more pleasurable object for someone who has all those concepts. So the existence of gem for that person depends utterly on the conceptual layer of Nama. And Nama does not exist without Rupa, without all those ex encounters with the physical world as an infant. We can't generate concepts unless we have data. So the child crawling around on all fours is gathering data about the, about the world, starts building her own concepts, like all small, the, the collection of all small, round, hard objects, which might include for her you know, smooth stones and marbles and gems. For her, at that, at early on, uh, her mother's uh, precious jade uh, bracelet is just full of small, round, hard things, which are just like the other small, round, hard things. And they go in your mouth like everything else. Right? So, so rupa is the basis of nama. And nama only ever points back to rupa. Right? So rupa is our encounter with the body and with forms. And nama is all the concepts that, land that are derived from that. <clears throat> so when we talk about nama rupa in Buddhism, we're not necessarily just talking about the mind and body, or mentality and materiality. Those two terms are kind of pointing back again to that, those, those, that developmental process where we arrive at an adult mind which is just jam-packed with concepts and can instantly recognize a gem lying in a, in a rubbish pile and know what it means to find a gem. <coughs> so, the, so existence doesn't happen. The gem does not exist unless the mind is primed with all this prior stuff for that existence to take place. So all the things that are coming into existence in our experience are being framed, if you will, or filtered or created by nama rupa. Because we have nama rupa, when contact arises, things come into existence. So 
this is what a, um, uh, this is uh, something that we can understand rationally because we uh, intellectually because of the way I've been describing it and part of what we're trying to do in practice as we're practicing with the meditation process um, with walking very slowly with paying attention with mindfulness is to see how things come into existence for the man who, who encounters the gem, part of what makes the gem come into existence is his desire for worldly wealth. Right? For someone who's gone beyond all concepts and all desires, for an arahat, it's, it's still just rubbish. It still belongs in the rubbish heap. It doesn't have any, any value because the, the arahat doesn't want anything. A fully liberated heart doesn't need anything, doesn't want anything, isn't, isn't in pursuit of anything, isn't hoping for anything. Everything is perfectly okay just the way it is. And if the job is to move the rubbish heap from here to there, then the rubbish heap gets moved from here to there. Which is not to say that the, the arahant or the fully enlightened person doesn't have the capacity to recognize, oh, that's a gem. But their personal greed for the gem wouldn't be there because they're not, they're not driven by existence and non-existence the way unenlightened people, worldlings are. So what we're trying to learn is how it is that the mind creates this process of things coming into existence, of the experiential existence of things. Noticing how phenomena, uh, categories of existence, things in our minds, mind states, pain and pleasure, rise and fall of the breath, uh, inside and outside, noticing how these things come to be by watching them just rise and pass away, rise and pass away, just to paying attention to this constant flow of change, sometimes called just watching a Nietzsche, um, teaches us in a visceral way, in, a, in an intuitive way, about how it is that our mind is doing this. It's very difficult to kind of pick it apart intellectually. You can't necessarily make your mind stop overlaying concepts on things. But as you pay very careful attention to, for, just for example, the breath, as you're watching the breath come in and go out, you're, you're observing a bunch of sensations. And, but part of your mind is it's constantly overlaying concepts on top of those sensations and creating this phenomenon of, oh, that's the breath coming in. Oh, look, and now it's going out. And the it is the breath. But the breath is just a concept. The actual experience is just it's like vibrations happening, pushes and pulls, tensions, movements, uh, whispery little feelings. None of them have the label, hi, I'm the in-breath. You know? But the mind instantly knows what that is and puts the label on it. So even while we're breathing and we're paying attention to the sensations of the breath and trying to just pay attention to that, part of our mind is generating things like my body, the abdomen rising and falling, air moving, uh, passageways, uh, vibrations, that very concept of vibrations. All these things are being kind of generated by the mind as a matter of course. We don't really have to do anything for that to happen. And so we recognize, we're able to recognize what's happening because the mind is generating all these concepts to overlay on top of the phenomenon of the experience of the sensations. So we see, if we stick with it, eventually um, some interesting phenomena arise, some interesting experiences will arise. And it's very similar to the way a concept like a word will lose its meaning if you repeat it often enough often enough. If you, maybe you did this when you were a child, or you pick a word, like the word watermelon. You just say it to yourself over and over again. Watermelon, 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 watermelon. And eventually it stops, the, 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 the conceptual overlay of a, of a large green fruit that has red on the inside and has little black seeds and is sweet. Um, when, you say the, when I say the word watermelon, that's what comes up the first time. And the second time it's still there. But if you keep saying watermelon to yourself over and over and over again, just hear the word over and over and over again, eventually the concept kind of fades away and all you're left with is like <laughs> right? this kind of meaningless sound that happens over and over again. 
and the, 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 the fruit goes away. And uh, to see your mind do that, like lose track of the concept and only have the, the sound, and the sound loses its meaning, is kind of weird. If you've never done that, I can recommend it as just something to try out. When you stop doing it for a little while, that, that watermelon still no longer means anything, but pretty soon the mind recovers and then you say watermelon to yourself again and it's back to being a fruit. So when we pay attention to the breath over and over and over again, the overlay of conce the concepts of abdomen and rising and falling or, or nose, nostril, lip, air moving, whatever it is that you're paying attention to, all the concepts that are, that are triggered by the paying attention to those sensations, they kind of fade away. And then you're just left with a raw experience of sensations. And you can actually lose track of like whether this is an in-breath or an out-breath. And you can even lose track of the fact that the concept of like where the breath is happening. It's just, there's some just sensations that are just happening. And you're just sort of sticking with them. What they are and where they are becomes sort of lost to you. It's like a word that's been repeated over and over again. So when you see this directly uh, in this kind of very careful paying attention, noticing what's happening way, the fact of the loss of the overlying concepts and the, the revelation of just the raw sense data, and then later on the concepts will come back, you get to see for yourself how it is that the mind makes something come into being. So when you're just paying attention to the sensations, there's just sensations. There's no labels, there's no meaning. It doesn't mean it, it's just sensations. And then at some other point, it'll be the breath again. You'll say, oh, look, now it's, that's the in-breath, this is the out-breath. Uh, same thing goes with walking. You know, at some, at some point early on, you're lifting the foot, and it's like, that's my foot, and it's kind of heavy, and I've got a little you know, cramp in my small toe, and now it's lifting up in the air, and my thigh kind of hurts, and like the mind will be assembling your whole leg and the whole experience of you doing something, moving your foot. Later on, you can be going through that whole process, and there's just these sensations happening uh, in concert with a, vague, a kind of a vague sense of movement. So there's sensations, more sensations, all kinds of sensations, very colorful sensations, pressures and heats and stuff. But the, the concept of foot is gone. The concept of lifting is gone. And the concepts, the, most of the concepts that allow this to be recognizable are temporarily abated. And then later on, they'll come back again. So seeing your concepts, conceptual overlay, come and go and come and go, um, sensitizes you to this overall process. And at some point, you'll... You can't help but sort of speculate, well, gosh, maybe maybe everything's like that. I mean, maybe not just feet and breath and watermelons, but everything is made of concepts, right? Well, that's actually the, that's actually the case. I mean, you kind of already know that because we've been talking about it. But uh, part of you doesn't know, right? Like deep inside, you don't really believe it, right? So you have to see it over and over and over again until that deep inside part of you comes to, to admit, okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's actually the case. Right? Uh, so this is why persistence in practice is so important and, and maybe consistency and paying attention to what actually happens. Not what you think is supposed to happen, not what you hope will happen, but what actually happens. And sometimes what actually happens is it's just very boring and it's very kind of mechanical and it's very... Uh, concrete. It's laden with concepts and the concepts aren't particularly visible to you. You just, that's the breath, this is the foot. Um, very mundane. But if you stick with it because of this process of the mind kind of, uh, you could say like, like, like the experiment with saying the word watermelon over and over again, the mind loses its uh, uh, it's like a rubber band that you stretch too many times. It loses its ability to elastically snap back to its, its same shape. And so by just kind of pushing on this thing over and over and over again, you can distort it and make the mind stop generating concepts, even for a couple of minutes, even for a few seconds. Um, if you see that the mind stops generating the concept of breath, 
then you get to experience what the raw sensations are like, just for a little while. Or, as I mentioned the other night, if it seems like you're sitting in meditation and, and you suddenly notice that part of your body is is weirdly distorted somehow. It's either missing or you, you know that your left hand is on top of your right hand, but it feels like it's the other way around. Or you, you, can't, you, you know that your hands are touching, but you can't tell how it is that they're touching. You notice that the concepts are not really doing their usual job. And so you, get, you start to get this insight into the conceptual nature, this overlay that's on top of our raw sensory data. And slowly it, it, it occurs to you, it seems more and more obvious, that it's all like that. It's just there's sensory data, including mental sensory data, and there's conceptual overlay, and it's the conceptual overlay that builds the stable world that we seem to inhabit. Now we're not trying to get rid of the conceptual overlay. Indeed not. That wouldn't be good. What we're trying to do is understand it. When we, when we understand that we're living inside a conceptual overlay, rather than uh, living in a world made of actual objects, then we can see the world the way it really is uh, much more clearly. And we can see that the concepts of value and me and wanting and uh, necessity and need and all kinds of other concepts um, they have no validity other than the validity that we give them. Right? So, that, so the validity of something like a gem is just a convention. Right? A gem only matters if other people care about gems too and are willing to give you money for them or barter them for food. And so our, our views and opinions can be, we can sort of see that our views and opinions are of the same nature. They're grounded in nama and rupa, uh, the, uh, everything that we believe to be true about others, about the world, and about ourselves is uh, historically grounded in all this stuff that goes all the way back to childhood. And it's kind of arbitrary because we didn't actually choose it. We didn't, we didn't decide to assign all small, round, hard objects into this category and give it the word stone. It's just what happens when you grow up in a culture. Right? You get exposed to all this stuff and your mind develops in this way. So it's not really yours. You just the mind grasps at things and assigns uh, the idea of mindness to things. So meditation practice shows us this in a very direct way, and we have to kind of see it over and over and over again. Even though it can get kind of boring at times, we have to see this in order for it to sink in and penetrate our hearts, penetrate our very very hard heads, penetrate our opinion. Uh, about what's true. And when we let go of our opinion, then we can see that uh, concept and reality are kind of two different things. Not that concepts are bad, but if all you have is concepts, if you don't realize that there are concepts, then you conflate your representation of things, the concepts that you have about things, with uh, as though they are the reality. And it's just not true. And that, that's what that's what Nietzsche is showing you. Right? Concepts are static. They're fixed. They're rigid. They don't change. Or they change very little over time. Whereas reality is just this constant turmoil of change. That's all it is. It's just flux. Right? So the concepts actually help us navigate reality without having to constantly renegotiate. Like, what is this? Oh, that's hardness. But it's, a, it's square. It's got an inside and an outside. Oh, it's a box. We don't have to sort of build concepts anew every time we encounter the world. Um, if we did, we'd be paralyzed. We wouldn't be able to do anything. Um, but if all we have is the concepts, then we can't recognize um, the truth of impermanence, of, of anicca. If we can't recognize the truth of anicca, then, uh, then we're, we're, we're taking the concepts that we have about things that seem to be static and permanent and real, we're taking those conceptual stand-ins as the actuality of the world. And we'll, we won't be able to recognize that our grasping at the concepts is what's causing the dukkha that we experience, the unsatisfactoriness in our life. If we want to 
get beyond unsatisfactoriness. We have to be able to see that, oh, it's just a concept and let it go. But we can't let it go until we see that it's just a concept. Right? We, we, don't have the, we don't have the room to maneuver in our minds if we can't tell that what we're, what we're grasping at is merely conceptual. Right? Once we see that it's merely conceptual, that it's fabricated by the mind, that it doesn't have any real reality on its own side, it's simply an overlay onto something which is fundamentally unknowable because it's a Nietzsche quality, then we can get a lot more relaxed about it. And it's possible to start saying, well, you know, okay, that person said something about me, and it's kind of hurtful. But, you know, the, the concept of me is not that, not that concrete. And their concept of me is just their concept of me. <coughs> and so I don't necessarily need to take it that seriously. And so something that before might have lived in your mind and burned and sizzled and caused all kinds of heartache because someone said something about you. Now you can just drop it and just be happy instead because that's a lot more pleasant. Right? But if you don't have that liberty of seeing that, oh, it's just concepts colliding, right? Her concept about me and my own concept about myself, they're just concepts. I can drop it, right? Until you can see that, it's, you can't really drop it. You can sort of ignore it, you can push it away, you can try to pretend to drop it, but until the heart really drops something, part of you is hanging on. So that, that part that's hanging on is going to be right where the suffering is. Right? So we're not here, the Buddhism isn't telling you you have to drop things. Buddhism is, Buddhism is saying, look here. Look here at this conceptual overlay on top of Anicca. And when you recognize it for yourself, you're like, oh my God, why am I holding on to this? This is stupid. And you just drop it automatically. Right? You don't have to make yourself drop anything. When you see for yourself that it just causes suffering if you hang on to it, and you go, okay, what am I going to do? Will I hang on to this and cause myself suffering? This pointless concept about myself and of the world, how, how I should be treated? Or will I set it down and be happy instead? Hmm, oh, that's a difficult choice. <laughs> happiness or suffering? Oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the happiness sounds pretty good, but gee, that concept is mighty attractive. I've been married to that concept for a long time. If I set it down, what will happen? Will I vanish? Will I disappear? Actually, it's not that hard of a choice. When you see it very clearly, you can just set it down. No harder than setting down a heavy backpack that you don't need to carry. You just take it off and set it down, and ah, it feels nice. And of course, because it's portable, you can always reach back over there and pick it up again, carry it around some more, if you want to. Right? You're not. You're no, no, there's no requirement that you have to set it down and leave it set down. So there's no kind of like uh, final parting of ways necessarily. But you can arrive at a place where you decide, you know, this is such a ridiculous concept. I'm just, I'm done with it. I'm not picking it up again. Like uh, maybe the, the idea of others are inferior to me, or I'm inferior to others, or I'm just as good as everybody else. Like all this kind of comparison of oneself to others in one's mind, it just causes a lot of trouble. But we're really, we're really vulnerable to that as long as we think that others are real and that we are real and that there's something at stake here. When we see that there's nothing at stake, others aren't real, and I'm not real either, not in the way that I've always presumed myself to be, then all that stuff is pretty easy to set down for ourselves. Now, others who haven't seen this yet, they're still embroiled with it. Right? They still have to suffer because of their, because of their grasping at these concepts. And when we've gone through this process of seeing how this works and finding our, way, finding our way to the point where we feel comfortable and motivated to let go of stuff that's unhelpful, then when we see somebody else who's suffering, we won't be in a place to look down on them or think that somehow they're deficient or feel pity for them. All we'll feel is compassion. We know exactly how it feels. It's like... Uh, 
It's like we've been fooled, right? And there's no fun being fooled. And when you see that somebody else has been fooled or been tricked or been hoodwinked or whatever, you don't feel contempt for them. You don't feel better than them. You don't feel lesser than them. You just feel compassion for them. You wish that they could also see the truth and free themselves of being of being hoodwinked by their concepts. So that's what that's what Anicca is pointing at, and that's what dependent origination, the teaching about dependent origination, <clears throat> is trying to get at. That there's this linkage between all those encounters with with stuff, with people with surfaces, with objects, with words, as you were growing up. There's a connection between that, the, con- the concepts that you have about yourself as an adult, and the suffering that you have in your life, and the individual encounters in this very moment with people and objects and concepts. So there's this, this kind of canonical teaching regarding dependent origination that involves these 12 links called the Nidanas. So uh, the canonical exposition goes something like this. Because of ignorance, sankharas arise, mental formations arise, or mental objects arise. With the arising of mental objects, based on that, nama-rupa arise. So nama-rupa, mentality, materiality arise. Dependent on that, without sankharas, these things don't arise because of because of uh, because of nama and rupa. The six sense bases come to be. The six sense bases is just the sensitivity of our sense organs, including our mind. The objects that the sense bases are able to encounter are categorically separate from each other. The six sense bases arise, and because we have six sense bases, there will be contact. Right? The sense bases are going to be encountering the world, there'll be sights arising, there'll be sounds arising, there'll be forms, tactile sensations arising. And because there's contact, there will be pleasant and unpleasant. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, there'll be feeling. So because of six sense bases, there's contact. Because of contact, there's feeling. Because there's feeling, there is what's called tanha. Right? Uh, tanha is thirst. We get, We see the gem, and we're like, ooh, I want that, right? Or we, we feel some deficiency and we want to we resolve that deficiency, so a thirst. And this thirst only arises because of our contact, our touching, of being touched by the world, and the feeling that, that that provokes. So if there were no feeling, we'd all be autistic, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't be motivated by anything. It would just be stuff arising and passing away without having any meaning to us. So feeling gives things meaning to us. And we pursue what gives us pleasure or what seems pleasurable or interesting or has possibilities of pleasure. Um, And we avoid things that look like they might be painful or troublesome or difficult or mentally, physically challenging for us. And things that don't give us any feelings at all, we just ignore for the most part. We're not moved by them at all. So the mind gets pushed around and all of our activities get pushed around by feeling. Feeling only happens because there's contact. No contact no feeling. So, kind of going back from the beginning, mental formations, uh, nama rupa, the six sense bases, the contact, the feeling, the thirst. Feeling triggers us to do things, so we go grasping after things. When we really get entangled with something, like, say, another person, our career, uh, uh, a gem, a, a valuable object, um, then something called clinging comes to be. So clinging is related to tanha. Tanha <coughs> provokes clinging. We start to grab onto thing and, and develop a relationship with it. Like I, I and this are somehow bound together. And then what binds things together is, is this clinging. From clinging comes uh, becoming. So the reason that we become, say, uh, a successful architect, or um, a good daughter, or um, uh, a failure, 
right, is because of the mind's clinging. All, all things come into being, all of our identities come into being, because there's some degree of clinging involved. The mind persistently thirsts after a particular state of being. Now, it seems weird that the mind would thirst after something like, I'm a failure. But there's something reassuring about knowing what you are. Right? So the mind will even cling at something which is unpleasant if it gives it form, it gives it structure, and it gives it some sense of security. So we don't only cling to things that we like, or things that we, we think are pleasant or good. We can also cling to things which aren't so great, because they, they form a basis of identity. So because of clinging, there's becoming, and because of becoming, there is birth, aging, and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Because we constantly are being associated with what we don't like, separated from what we do like, we're constantly having our wishes frustrated. This is the whole mass of suffering that the Buddha is pointing to in the First Noble Truth. And then uh, this whole process is a process of linkages. One thing kind of uh, only arises because of what came before. Without what comes before, the thing that arises can't arise. So without contact, there can't be any tanha. Without tanha, there can't be any clinging. The whole thing kind of goes back to this original ignorance. Right? Ignorance of what? Ignorance of causality. Ignorance of cause and effect. Ignorance of the conceptual overlay that lays on top of everything that we take to be real and that we grasp at. Once we really penetrate it clearly and we understand how this works and we stop grasping at it, ignorance is dispelled. And so even though the mental body is, uh, the body is still here and the mind is still here and things are still arising and passing away, because, there's no because we've ruptured the clinging aspect, the believing in things, the presuming the truth of things, the buying our concepts as reality, uh, the, uh, the inappropriate uh, reification of that which is impermanent as permanent, or that which is uncertain as certain. So the categories of impermanence and permanence um, might be a little too dogmatic. I think certain, uh, the, uh, more, more closer to the truth is like uncertainty or more like um, uh, inconclusiveness of things, the kind of open-endedness of phenomena, and the close-endedness of our concepts. Right? So, we're, we're, so, so because we grasp at concepts, the concepts are indeed pointing to something which is maybe real, something that's actually happening in the world, but that experience of that actual reality is always imbued with this kind of uh, uncertainty, right? It, it, it only derives certainty from the concepts that we overlay on top of it. So yes, sensations are arising, and the idea that it's the in-breath is something that we're doing with our concepts to give it a kind of a form and a shape and a certainty to it. That certainly is the in-breath, right? But the sensations themselves are changing so rapidly that you can't actually say what it is. Right? If you really get down, down to the nuts and bolts of sensations, it's just that there it is, and now it's gone. There it is, and now it's gone. There it is, and now it's gone. It's changing too fast for it to be certain in any meaningful way, experientially. But conceptually, you can definitely say, oh, you, you, know, you take a whole collection of sensations and you slap a label on it, and you can say, that's the in-breath. So again, the concepts are there. They serve a purpose. They're not, they're not wrong. They're not bad. But if you grasp at them, they cause suffering because they're, uh, they seem certain and what underlies them isn't certain. And so they seem like they shouldn't change and yet things do change. And so we're constantly being confronted by this changing nature because we haven't really accepted the changing nature of the world. So dependent origination, the Buddha's teaching on this, um, it's, it's threaded throughout the teaching. So the teaching on kama, cause and effect. You know, if, you, if you conduct yourself in a wholesome way, you'll get wholesome results. Uh, one thing leads to another. What goes around comes around. There's lots of ways of putting it. Um, it operates at this kind of really, really broad level of ethical action in the social world, redounding upon us and in negative or positive ways, depending on the valence, uh, right down to um, 
the nature of your attention when you're paying attention to something. If you're paying attention to something with a mind imbued with greed, then you'll see what's attractive about it and what's what's possibly delightful and what's kind of worth grasping at because it's going to give you some kind of gratification. If you're paying attention to it with a very dollar mind, a, a, a mind that's imbued with dhamma and right view, you'll see that it's just a rising and passing away phenomena and there's all these concepts that are kind of cluttering your view from time to time. But the actual reality of it is there's nothing really worth grasping there. So, so the mind's stance, its attitude towards phenomena, uh, colors everything, changes everything. This is wisdom, to, to know this. But it's, again, it's, it's an aspect of cause and effect. Uh, you also might have heard it stated as this, that conditionality. And uh, the Buddha puts it very simply. The simplest way of putting it is that when there is this, <coughs> that, or, or when there's that over there, this thing, when there's that, this arises. So, like, when there's tanha, or when there's contact, vedana arises. With the fading away of contact, vedana fades away. Right? So when there is this, that arises. Without the presence of this, that cannot arise. With the fading away of this, that fades away. So that's the second and third noble truth. So there's another place where it shows up. There is dukkha. There is a cause of dukkha, and that is clinging. When one abandons clinging, the dukkha fades away. The first, second, and third noble truth. It's just another—it's another restatement of this cause and effect principle. This, that conditionality, the twelve links of dependent origination is just a, a more elaborate presentation of exactly that same thing. So, um, we don't—you don't need to memorize all the doctrinal links and try to get them all right and, and uh, try to see how nama rupa conditions the six sense bases it's not that complicated it's very simple actually you just pay careful attention to what's actually happening in the present moment especially the fact that the present moment is dynamic Things are kind of rising and passing away all the time in the present moment. Stay kind of stay on top of things, and um, as the mind gets more and more concentrated, and attention becomes sharper and more penetrating, you'll see for yourself. Like you can't help but see it. It's like if you look at. Uh, uh, it's a little bit like you might remember from the '80s and '90s. There were these kind of posters that people had called Magic Eye poster, Magic Eye images and it looked like kind of kind of wallpaper you know a bunch of fishes uh, in a wallpaper but buried in the, the the edges of all those little images of fishes there'd be like a, a picture of a boat but you could only see it if you stared at it long enough and just sort of let your let your gaze soften and you keep looking at it looking at it and, and lots of people are like what are you looking at and say, oh, i'm trying to see the boat the whole, oh, I see it, and if you do, damn, I can't see it yet. <laughs> but if you keep looking at one of these magic eye pictures long enough, sooner or later, all of a sudden, something happens inside your brain, and there's the boat, you see it, right? It's like, oh, it's kind of a stupid-looking boat, but there it is, I see it, right? And so there's all, all kinds of these things. They had, you know, boats and airplanes and all kinds of simple shapes uh, with all kinds of weird... Uh, overlying patterns that the shape was buried in somehow. Now, exactly how they made those things, I don't really know. But the theory is is that um, you have the the shape that you're trying to project, and the the pit, the kind of uh, background wallpaper that goes over the top of it, and you merge those two things in some sort of computerized way, and our brain decodes the image. But only if we give it enough information, we have to look at it long enough. And then the part of our brain that handles stereoscopic vision will pick out that those those edges that make up the boat. So when you see one of these things for the first time, it's kind of amazing. After you've seen about a hundred of them, there's like a, <laughs> they're kind of boring, and that's why they went out of fashion. You hardly see them anymore. Um, so uh, 
seeing how the mind creates suffering is just like that. You just keep looking and looking and looking at the same stupid wallpaper, and one day it pops out at you. You're like, oh, geez, it's right there. <coughs> how come I didn't see it before? I'm such an idiot. <laughs> Everybody else knows it but me. That's sometimes how it feels. It seems so obvious in retrospect. That's so simple, so direct. It's right there in front of you all the time. Your mind's constantly fooling you. And uh, all it takes is just a little shift of perspective to see, oh, it's, it's ridiculous what I'm doing, what my mind does. There's a great sutta in which the Buddha compares someone who's, who's practicing for enlightenment a little bit like a blind man who's been sold a bill of goods about his clothing. So he goes to a vendor and he says, I want to have a pure, fine, white cloth to wear so that other people will see me wearing this beautiful white cloth. And the vendor knows that the man is blind, so he sells him a dirty cloth. and says, here you go, fine sir, this is a pure white cloth. Wear it in good health. And so the man, the blind man accepts his pure white cloth, starts wearing it, and it's got like huge blood stains and stuff all over it, but he can't see it, right? So he's so proud of his pure light, white cloth, because in his mind he's imagining he's going around just like shining, you know, with this pure white garment that he's wearing. And then his friends and family see that he's kind of blind, and so they, they take him to the doctor, and the doctor like treats his eyes and you know puts on salves and uh, makes him inhale special smokes and gives him special nose drops. And one day his, his sight is restored. And the first thing he does is he looks at his, his cloak, and he realizes that he's been cheated. He's like, curse that fellow who sold this thing to me. What a, what a, what a demon he is. I, he, I would beat him with a stick if I could find him. That's how you feel about your own mind when you finally realize the trick it's been playing on you. Right? It's just like that. It's like, uh <laughs> All this suffering for, for the sake of this mind, this mind's delusion. So, so that's, what we're, that's kind of what we're pursuing here. Right? We're, we're not trying to become like doctrinal experts about the 12 links of dependent origination. We're just trying to stare at this thing long enough with sufficient wisdom and that doesn't take that much. You have to understand that things aren't, like the concepts of, your, of things aren't the same as the things themselves. So that's why we look at just raw sensation. We pay attention to the rising and passing of the breath. It's boring, right? But there's all these concepts that are getting in there too. So we have all kinds of tricks to help us stick with it long enough to be able to see the truth. <coughs> we have to pay attention to, to anicca, the impermanent, constant, changing nature of things, because right there is the gateway to all this understanding about how things work. Right? If you can't see anicca, it's only because your concepts are overlaying your experience. Right? So you can be sure that if you're not seeing anicca, it's okay, there's just more work to do. But the truth is, everything's changing. Right? Like All your experience is constantly changing. Anything that seems static only seems static. It's not really static. So uh, you just uh, this is where faith in the Buddhist teaching comes in. Okay? If you if you uh, listen to the Dhamma talks, if you read the suttas, if you uh, study enough doctrine to kind of get it, if you've practiced enough to have a sense, oh yeah, this leads in the right direction. Then you start to see how this all like it all hangs together. The thing that we're actually clinging to the most, the concept that's most precious, most uh, central, most like defended, the thing that we least want to see as being a Nietzsche is very, very close to our heart. It's, it's me. <laughs> it's, it's me, isn't it? Yeah. I was afraid of that. <laughs> so the thing the Buddha points out over and over again is that when you seeing the truth doesn't destroy anything other than illusion. Right? Um, the Buddha never says there is no self. He doesn't say that. Because, and part of that's because we constantly experience the self. The self is phenomenologically experienceable. We can experience being a self. We do it all the time. The problem is, is we think it's true. We think it's an accurate representation of re reality. We're, we're, we're grasping at a static concept and using it as a substitute 
with a reality which is constantly changing and quite uncertain. Right? So all of our views about ourself and our position in the world and all of our possessions and all of our history and all of our shortcomings, etc., is all kind of a nexus of concepts that are based on history and experience. Um, but the concepts aren't the same thing as reality. And that's the thing that we have to teach ourselves experientially. We have to keep looking at things that are very accessible, like the breath, see the conceptual uh, interference that gets in there, experience over and over again about the reality of that there isn't actually anything static. And so anything that appears to be static is quite questionable. It's inherently bogus on some level and is due for a careful cross-examination by a vigorous prosecutor. Right? So when we do that, when we, when we have the strength of mind and the strength of presence of mind and the depth of practice to be able to do that, we can see for ourselves that the things that we cling to and the things that cause us the most suffering are the same things. Right? And that it's actually possible to just very gently let them be. Right? We don't have to annihilate our history. We don't have to deny anything that's true about our self. We don't have to prove anything to anybody. You just see it correctly, and it relaxes all by itself. The seeing is the trick, and the only way you're going to see is if you look. So that's what we're here to do. We're going to study reality by paying attention to this constant arise and passing away. And when the 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 span of our study starts to include these things that are really kind of near and dear to our heart, uh, our self-concept, our self-image, um, well, it might be a little, might be a little challenging, right? So you don't need to, uh, you don't need to be in a rush, except if you want to bring about the end of suffering. If that's a motivation, okay, then don't delay. You know? As soon as you're able to look, look. As soon as the mind's able to see uh, the, uh, the inherent uncertainty of all experiential phenomena, all arisen phenomena, is inherently uncertain, inherently kind of open-ended. Uh, the mind struggles to give it meaning and, and categorize it and locate it in the scheme of things, to understand it, to conceptualize it. And if you don't let it do that, then all you're left with is kind of this, oh, I don't know what's going on, and it's kind of uncertain. And uncertainty doesn't feel that great. Like We like to know what's going on. So uh, you have to kind of stay with it until it starts to seem tolerable. Right? When, when uncertainty becomes tolerable, then you can start to notice uncertainty in more and more areas of the world, areas of your experience. And when the heart finally gets to a place where it has tremendous confidence in the Buddha, tremendous confidence in the Dhamma, tremendous confidence in the Sangha, and the mind is bright and clear and alert, and practice is kind of going smoothly along, uh, and we're seeing over and over again in every waking moment uncertainty, uncertainty, uncertainty. That's visible in, in, in everything that's happening. You're eating lunch and everything about it is rising and passing away. Okay, then you're right at the edge. You're kind of at the doorway of breakthroughs and insight into what's into what the Buddha is pointing to. You, your your heart's closer and closer to like changing its allegiance. So we have an inner loyalty to our concepts. We believe they're true, right? and we can't kind of reach inside our own hearts and physically force it to be different. Right? That loyalty is, comes at a, a high price of lots and lots of experiences with concepts and with how sturdy they are, how reliable they are, how functional they are in the world. So we kind of like our concepts. We're not that keen to abandon them. We're loyal to them. We prefer them to, to, to uncertainty itself. Uncertainty seems scary and not fun at all. Uh, so just to reassure you, the concepts will still be there. But your loyalty to them can change to the point where you no longer take them that seriously. You just use them for what they're good for. And then when they're not necessary, you can just leave them aside. 
and abide in peace. Okay, so I hope I answered some of the questions from last night. Uh, I'm sure there's some material that I, I could have covered that I didn't, but that seems to be wrapping it up. So I'll leave it there for your consideration. Sadhu, 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 Sadhu.